So today's message is titled, On the Run, and we're going to be covering 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. And as you can, if you just do a quick overview, the chapters are pretty short, not that long. So um, we'll see how, how I, I think we'll do okay here with, with the time. So after their emotional farewells at the end of chapter 20, we're told there that Jonathan ends up going back to Gibeah, but David simply left. But here's the thing. Jonathan had some place to go, whereas David is now officially alone in exile. Now he's desperate. He's in desperate need to escape the murderous intentions of Saul. In these two chapters we're going to be covering today, it's going to begin the unit on David's permanent estrangement from Saul, which will continue all the way to the end of 1 Samuel. Chapter 21 will introduce, introduce us to three more characters who will play important roles in future narratives and explains David's relationship, relationship to each. We're going to be hearing about Ahimelech, the priest, Doeg, the Edomite, and Achish, the Philistine king. Chapter 22 will show us the risks involved in helping David. So as we go through these passages and you know that, that speak about the issues and challenges David faced as he was on the run, I, I want you to think about, and I hope, hope you will see that the difficulties in your own life are designed to teach us how to sit on the throne. So let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Lord God, thank you again for that, um, for this day, for this time that we have together, Lord. You've definitely blessed us in so many ways, Lord. And we often forget, take for granted all that you do for us and, and just all that you hold in the palm of your hand, Lord. And so at this moment, we... We thank you for those, for all of that, Lord. Um, so now as we continue this time of, of worship, Lord, and we sit at your feet and listen to your word, I pray you will speak to us powerfully, Lord. Lord, uh, you're, I know you're doing some great things in the lives of each and every person here. Uh, some of those things uh, people are discovering and some of them, they're just, again, just enjoying those blessings. I, I pray that you will continue to shower them. Lord, I pray for those watching and listening that you will bless them too through this message and that they, they will hear from you. Lord, whether it's a word or a phrase or the entire message, Lord, that you will speak powerfully through, through, through this message. Empty me of myself, Lord, and then... And may just use me as your instrument to speak your truth, Lord, boldly 
unashamedly, Lord, and that your word will definitely go out there and bear fruit. So bless this time, Lord, and fill us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 21. The word of God says, David went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob. Ahimelech was afraid to meet David, so he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David answered the priest Ahimelech, The king gave me a mission, but he told me, Don't let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I've ordered you to do. I've stationed my young men at a certain place. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, but the young men may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear that women are being kept from, from us. As always, when I go out to battle, the young men's bodies are consecrated even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. When the bread was removed, it had been replaced with warm bread. One of Saul's servants detained before the Lord was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Do you have a spear or a sword on hand? I didn't bring my sword or my weapons since the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it, for there isn't another one here. There is, there is none like it, David said. Give it to me. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servant said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has ten thousands. <clears throat> <clears throat> David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to the servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? All right. Well, on the run now and with limited options, David has to quickly decide the people he could count on as his allies. At the moment, though, there are a couple of things he desperately needs. Food and shelter and a good weapon that he can defend himself with and maybe hunt with or whatnot, but he needed a good weapon. So he decides to head towards the nearby city of Nob, which we'll learn in chapter 22 had 
taken the place of Shiloh as the city of priests. Once there, he encounters Ahimelech, and he was the brother of Ahijah, who had joined Saul as his spiritual advisor after Samuel refused to serve him. And we covered that back in chapter 14. For that reason, David was unsure whether to trust Ahimelech and decide and decided to make up a plausible story to account for the fact that he was on his own. Now, Ahimelech would have seen this as suspicious since he knew, he knew deep down inside that any royal ambassador on official business <clears throat> would always have food and a bodyguard. But nevertheless, Ahimelech doesn't question David. He accepts his need for secrecy and his request for some loaves of bread. But all that's available is the consecrated bread, or as we also see here, also known as the bread of the presence, which was set out on a table in the holy place of the tabernacle. These 12 large loaves symbolize the 12 tribes with whom the Lord had entered into a covenant. When they'd been replaced, the discarded loaves were not for ordinary use, but had to be eaten by the priests. But when Ahimelech realized the desperation of David and how hungry he was and that he needed food, he, the priest made an exception and gave him the five loaves that he wanted. The only condition was David's assurance that he and his men were ceremonially clean by not having sexual relations within the past few days, according to the criteria laid out in Leviticus chapter 15. Well, this led David to say that his men weren't only clean, but that they were holy, that they were consecrated themselves, set apart by virtue of their special mission. Well, after hearing this, verse 6 says that the priest gave him the consecrated bread. As all this was happening, we learn in verse 7 that Doeg, a servant of Saul, who was an Edomite. And just to give you a little background, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Um, uh, well, he was a servant of Saul. He was there detained before the Lord in Nob at that time. Now, nothing much more is said about him, but that he was just simply there. But as we'll see, he will eventually play a significant and crucial and ominous role in this entire story. And so he, David accepts the bread and he takes off. Now, when 
David fled to Nob, to that city there. It marked the beginning of an exile that lasted about 10 years. Not, not all of David's wilderness experiences are recorded, but enough history has been given to show us that he was a man of faith and courage. Again, while it's difficult to determine the background of every psalm, it's likely that David's figurative years are reflected in Psalm 7, 11 through 13, 16 through 16 and 17, 25, 22, 25, 31. I mean, there's several others here that I, I can go on. I can go on with that, but there are several others that, again, his these formative years are reflected in the Psalms. Psalm 18 is his song of praise when God gave him triumph over his enemies. I think it's wonderful that David wrote so many encouraging psalms during this period of great suffering. And from them, God's people today, us, we as Christians, can read them and find strength and courage in our own lives during times of testing. Even our Lord, our Lord and Savior quoted Psalm 22.1 and 31.5 when he was hanging on the cross. Well, David wasn't done quite just yet. So he made a second request, this time for weapons. Again, he lied saying that he was on an urgent mission for the king. Well, Goliath's sword was produced, and David eagerly took it, exclaiming, there's none like it. What's ironic here is that he had trusted in the Lord to slay the giant with that sword, but now he was putting his confidence in the sword of his slain enemy. Well, this entire encounter with Ahimelech reflects the speed, urgency, and danger David was in. Yes, he may be headed for a throne eventually in the long run, but here he's still an empty-handed fugitive on the run. Furthermore, David's visit to Ahimelech Ahimelech, the priest, taught him a valuable lesson about the need for integrity and honesty. See, although at first it seems as if his lie brought him, at first it seems like his lie had brought him personal safety, but we learn in the next chapter that it eventually led to the slaughter of the priests at Nob. And when he saw the damage that his lies had caused, we're going to see there that David expressed regret for what he had done, and he took responsibility for it. Well, needing to 
get clear of Saul, David's next destination, some 30 miles to the southwest, was in enemy territory. The Philistine city of Gath. And by coincidence, Goliath's hometown. Now, David, in his mind, you know, he thought that he'd arrive at Gath with Goliath's sword strapped to his side, serve the king there in the court just as he had done with with uh, Saul and just blend in without being recognized. But he was way too optimistic. See, he was too well known by now to go unnoticed. Everyone knew about him, had heard about him. No matter where he went, people recognized him. King H's servants not only knew him, that we're also familiar with the songs that were being sung about him and being danced to. They knew who he was. Now realizing that this particular attempt to fake it till you make it had failed and that he had been discovered, he tried it again. But this time, he pretends to be insane by acting like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and just letting saliva run down his beard. That was just a short description. I'm sure it was just a lot more that he had done. Well, this time, his boy seems to work. The king of Gath wants nothing at all to do with David and comments that there's already enough crazy people around him. Why would he want another crazy person there? Why would he want him in his, in his house as a servant? You know, a, and what's interesting too is that you know, he knew, they all knew that he was a king as well. So it's interesting here that one king was addressing another king in, in that way and now, Psalms 34 and 56 both come out of a come out of this bizarre experience. Psalm 56 was his prayer for God's help when the situation became dangerous, and Psalm 34 was his hymn of praise after God had delivered him. Although he mentions fear in verses 4 and 7 and deliverance from trouble in verses 6, 17, and 19 from that psalm. The emphasis of Psalm 56 is on the slander and verbal attacks of the Philistine leaders as they try to get their king to deal with David. There's no question that David was, was a frightened man while he was in Gath. But he sustained his faith by remembering God's promises and God's call upon his life. 
according to Psalm 34, David, David did a lot of praying while he was in battle. And the Lord heard him. David learned that the fear of the Lord conquers every other fear. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord was indeed merciful to David to enable him to escape back home to his homeland. And so likewise, no matter how you feel or how dismal the circumstances appear, the safest place in the world is in the will of God. That is the safest place to be. In his word and in his will, I mean, there's no other place I'd, I'd rather be. Yes. You may be frightened. You may be unsure, but what will sustain us is our faith and remembering God's promises. God's promises that He will always be with you and He will always be there to strengthen you, to sustain you, to help you during these times. And remembering his call for your particular life. That he calls you to be his child. And not your son. So again, regardless, I know it's hard to think about when you're in that situation, but you do you have to stop him and remember where he has you, who you are, what he's done for you. Right, so now let's come back to our Bibles and move over to chapter 22 in order to see you know, what immediately happens after this. Now let's I'll read that to you now. First Samuel chapter 22. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave in the cave of Abulam. When David's brother and his father, when, da when David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From the there, David went to Mizpah, Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered at that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarack tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give you all the fields and vineyards? You think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. 
None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. <clears throat> the king sent messengers to summon the priests, Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests at Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, Listen, son of Atu, I'm at your service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, Why did you and Jesse's son conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. I have to the king, Who among all your servants is faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any other of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all this. But the king said, You will die, Himelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests the priest of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priest. But Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priest himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priest, with the sword. Both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Etu, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. That last birthday is very prophetic. Well, now escaping from enemy territory, David made his made for the area that he knew, Adullam, which the name means refuge. And it was there in Judah, between Gath and Bethlehem. Originally, this was a Canaanite city. And uh, we're told that in Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. And it was captured by Joshua in the course of his 
occupation of the land. And there he took residence in the cave. And over time, it became a place where every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented. Now it's important to add here that David here is a type of Christ in a couple of ways. First, in his present rejection. And secondly, in the way in which he calls the same kind of people to himself for salvation. Well, in short, in a short time, a small army of about 400 men had gathered at Adullam. And later it would expand to 600 men. The world would see these men as misfits, as outcasts, as unloved and unwanted. But David, but under David, Second Sam, but under David, we're told in Second Samuel chapter 23 that they eventually became mighty men of valor. The transformation of this group was credited to David's leadership under God and a reminder to the church as a whole, to not just this church, but the church as a whole today that under godly leadership, the Lord can transform the marginalized and the outcast people of the world to become mighty men and women of God. Friends, church, true leaders attract the best people who see in the leader those qualities of character that they most admire. The people around David would would never have noticed in history. The, the people around David uh, would never have been noticed in history were it not for their association with him. Just as our Lord's disciples would have died unknown had they not not walked with Jesus. God usually doesn't call the great or the powerful to be his servants, but those who have a heart for him and an eagerness to obey his will. David's little band of rejects represents the future of the nation and God's blessing was with them. History reveals that it is a devoted remnant, small as it might be, that holds the key to the future of God's work on this earth. Going back to the Psalms, Psalms 57 and 142 are associated with David's stay at the cave of Adullam. And both of them emphasize David's faith that God was his refuge. As David prayed, the cave became a holy tabernacle, where by faith he could find shelter under the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. So what looked like a cave to others, David's divine sanctuary 
for the Lord was his portion and his refuge. Oh, to David, the fugitive life was like being in prison, but he trusted the Lord to see him through it. He knew that God would keep his promises and give the throne and give and, and give David the throne and the kingdom. We ask you have your own sanctuary place. You have a place where you can come to the Lord and just pour your heart out to him. And give yourself completely to him. It doesn't have to be necessarily a closet, it can be in the room, a time when no one's around and when was the last time you just went on your knees? And just came to him and just thank him and cry out to him and glorify him and praise him. It's okay to do that every once in a while. I mean, if you can do it more often than that, be great, but find your own place, your own divine sanctuary where the Lord will be your portion and your refuge. Well, we're then told in verses 3 and 5 that his parents, yes, he took care of his parents. Young men and women, just being mindful of that, David's parents had joined him too. But because of uh, concern for their for their welfare, he traveled to Moab to make arrangements for them to stay there while he was in hiding. Now, coincidentally, this is the same location where you can uh, that was uh, we're told about in the Book of Ruth. His, his grandmother, great grandmother. Well, he again made arrangements for them to stay there while he was in hiding. Soon after David returned, the prophet Gad told him to leave Adullam. So he went to the forest of Harith, which was also in Judah. He obeyed. He obeyed the prophet. He knew the prophet was from the Lord and he was speaking God's word. And it may not have made sense. Like, this is, okay, this is where my people are. This is where headquarters is at. What do you mean you want me to leave? He obeyed the Lord. He obeyed the word of the Lord. As soon as Saul found out about David returned to Judah, began to blast all his followers for their failure to communicate all they knew about David's activities, particularly his close relationship with his son Jonathan. He sued Saul. Doeg, who had seen David at Nob, told the king how the priest at Nob had assisted David in his need. But yes, you know, although he was a spy, he basically ratted David out. In his paranoia, Saul concluded that Ahimelech and the other priests were conspirators against them. After calling for them and listening to their self-defense, he ordered them to be killed. But no one, none of the guards were able to do it. Uh, the Lord's priest. These are God's priests. 
and kill them. So Doeg raised his hand because he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't a Hebrew, he was an Edomite again. Remember that. But Doeg raised his hand and he said he'd be willing to undertake the gruesome assignment. And we also learned that when Saul was satisfied with that, he was like, yeah, you, you do it. It says in verses 17 through 19 that he killed 85 priests at Nod. And sure that he had a group with him as well, but together, he killed them together with their families and their livestock. A complete massacre. A butchering of the Lord's priests. The chapter then ends by telling us only that that, that only Abathar, Abiathar had survived. He fled to David and told him exactly everything that had taken place. Then he stayed with David and he served, he ended up serving him as high priest until we're told in 1 Kings chapter 2 that he was justly removed from office by Solomon. The, the episode here in verses 20 to 23 is really interesting. I'm going to deviate just a little bit. And it's because I want to talk about the priests just a little bit. See, it shines, those verses there shine the light on the history of the priesthood in Israel. Now, I find this interesting, and maybe some of you as well, but just stay with me here as I, again, just deviate just a little bit. See, if you read these verses in relation to chapter 2, verses 31 through 36, it provides a general overview of that history. There we see three elements of the history of the priesthood. Number one, the house of, of Eli will be terminated. Number two, one man of that priestly house shall be spared, but he shall end in grief. And three, there will be instituted a new faithful priestly house. Now in verse in chapter 22, verses 20 to 23, we have the counterpart of the first two elements of chapter two. Number one, the priestly house is destroyed by Saul. And number two, one man, Abiathar, is saved by David. The third element the institution of the new of a new faithful order refers to David, David's authorization of Zadok. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 27 and 35, where is where we see the, se the sequence completed. Abiathar is explicitly linked to the house of Eli, and Zadok is now fully established. Thus, three kings served to implement the anticipation of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Saul eliminates the house of Eli. David rescues Abiathar. And Solomon banishes Abiathar and establishes Zadok. This again shows us how God works in and through all events, regardless of, of how long it takes, to accomplish, to fulfill his word, 
and to accomplish his will and purpose. His word will always stand. It will never fade. It will always come true. His promises will always come true. Now returning back to the story, notice that in, again, verses 6 through 23, as was also in the case of chapter 20, David is rarely present. When he is present, he is innocent, compassionate, caring, and ready to acknowledge his responsibility. The main character in this episode is Saul, who harshly accuses and then more harshly executes. Chapter 22 concerns the demise of Saul, who is now deeply alienated from his own people. Saul has nothing left but raw power. He has no religious support, no legitimacy, no charisma. We're basically watching the performance of power from which the spirit has departed. We're basically watching the performance of power from which the spirit has departed. Such power will end up only causing death. Eventually, as we shall see soon, such power can only helplessly die amid the massive death it has authorized. All the while, David waits. And Israel waits with David. Partly there's a waiting for Saul to die, and partly there's a waiting for a kingdom still promised, but not yet at hand. Overall, these two chapters illustrate that the worst, that in the worst of times, and under the most dire circumstances, people go in opposite directions, seeking extreme solutions. But in all reality, through it all, regardless of what people are doing, God is still at work. God is still at work behind the scenes, accomplishing his purposes. The most obvious way in which God is at work in this text is by bringing his prophetic word to fruition. While David finds protection and provisions in exile, Saul gives the ludicrous command to execute the priest at Nob. Though this looks like a desperate act of a godless king, we know from what we've covered so far that this is the fulfillment of God's word. God had foretold the execution, the execution of the of these pre, of the priesthood many years before. The effective ministry of God's word in the world is a reoccurring theme in both books of Samuel. And just as God brought the prophecy concerning the priesthood to fulfillment, other texts emphasize the saving power of God's word. The prophetic call of Samuel in, in chapter 3 emphasized three facets 
three facets of that word. First of all, the word of God is certain and true, whether for good or ill. God sends the, sets the standard and his word announces the verdict. His word finds fruition in the lives of those for whom his voice is intended. Secondly, his word is evocative. Evocative, I'm sorry. Meaning it would it is it it's calling those of us who hear it and read it to service and submission. So it evokes action, evokes feelings, emotions, and, and to do something. It's intended to arouse us from laziness, from idleness, from being asleep, just as it aroused young Samuel from his early morning sleep. And three, God's word is transformative, changing all who respond to his call. Thus, it has a ministry of both information and transformation, which can be illustrated in many biblical texts. And so, similarly here in chapters 21, and 22, they, it serves to bring up, to, to shine a light again on all three facets of God's word. The overarching theme here is that God's word is certain and true. Again, as illustrated by the death of the priest and man. This here is precisely the message the world needs to hear. See, in previous decades, many attacked the validity of the Bible and challenged the trustworthiness of God's Word. But in the world we live in today, we're faced with a different challenge. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. And that challenge is this, and where basically the goalposts have moved or they've completely shifted. Right now, we live in a generation that rejects the idea that truth is absolute and that it's instead it's relative. You remember me saying, mentioning that what's my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth and it's all relative. The truth isn't absolute. Many today dethrone human intellect altogether and turn instead to other paths of truth beyond, besides reason, such as emotions and intuition. So there are positive aspects of such a shift. It is still necessary to communicate this simple truth of the gospel. God will be faithful to his word. God will be faithful to his word. This message comes as comfort, 
to the believer and cause for alarm for the unbeliever. This cause for alarm raises another challenge for our generation, namely the lack of concern for the Bible's message of condemnation. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a message of condemnation in the Word of God. Unfortunately, our culture, and yes, even many churches out there have painted the Bible's portrait of God so much that we hear little talk of the consequences of rebellion, sin, and disobedience. Yet these two chapters clearly show us that God was faithful to his oracle of judgment against the priests, and that he will therefore be faithful to his oracles against Saul. And therefore we can infer from this that God will be faithful to his oracle, oracles of eternal judgment for those who continually ignore, reject, and rebuff his grace, his free gift of grace. second and third facets of God's word were that it's evocative and transformative. Misery is a natural and inevitable consequence for those who choose not to be rightly related to God and his word. It's only logical to conclude that we cannot believe in God without also believing in a destiny for those who do not want God. C.S. Lewis emphasized that no one goes to heaven deservingly, and no one ever goes to hell unwillingly. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Jesus something that a lot of people don't understand, they don't get, they haven't comprehended it. But eventually, again, hopefully they will, while they're alive, that eventually they will come to understand this. Everyone who is in hell right now have chosen it. They've chosen it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. They decided to reject and say, you know what? I'm good. I'm happy the way I am. I've heard the message. It's a good message. It's a healthy message. I think it's a good teaching, but not for me. I've got more important things to do. I'm afraid of what my parents will say. I'm afraid of what my friends will say. I'm afraid of what society will call me. I'm afraid they're going to call me a bigot. I'm afraid they're going to call me, you know, that I'm, I'm not a you know, all kinds of names. You know, I can go over all kinds of names, but you know, maybe that's why they reject me. Maybe they feel like they're not good enough. Or, I don't know. It could be a number of reasons why. But we've chosen to say no. 
just like us who are believers, we've chosen to say yes to Christ. We've chosen to say, yes, Lord, come and be the Lord of my life. Be my king. Be my savior. I choose you over this world. I choose to live my life in obedience to you. They've chosen to say, say yes. They've chosen hell over heaven. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever have it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. David and Saul illustrate two types of people identified in the quote by Lewis. David illustrates the person who responds to God's call and begins a lifelong process of transformation. But Saul is the opposite figure, who shows the natural and, and, and inevitable consequence of refusing God's call. So what we see in these chapters are that both of them are going in opposite directions. And there's now a clear wedge between David and Saul. And the distance is only getting greater and wider with each passing chapter. The contrast between these two, these two cannot be more acute than in their reactions to the priest's Nam. David regretfully accepts blame for the massacre. While ironically, Saul seems resolute in his condemnation of the priest. Saul, but see, Saul is ultimately responsible for their deaths. So David, he humbly accepts all the blame. Saul is slowly and gradually self-destructing, while David is successfully growing in strength and self-assurance. This process will Continue until Saul is dead and David is king. This much we know because the Bible tells us they proclaimed it as such. So, again, let me, as I begin to close this message, let me ask you of those two types of people, which one are you? Are you like? David, who has a heart for the Lord and sees himself now needing and wanting and be comforted to get strengthened by the Lord and accepts responsibility, knows that he's been, that he was the one who did wrong there because of that massacre. Um, or are you it's their fault, not mine. They're, they did it to themselves. Notice again, and when you read when you read that passage again, he was saying it's them, it's them. They're conspiring against me. They handle like this. No, we don't know. But still, he blames them. Are you refusing God's call?
Quit, I would say quit resisting. If he's calling you and he's been pursuing, you know that he's been pursuing you and pushing and just just tugging at your heart. That's what I mean. Been tugging at your heart. Let go of all the you know, all the fears, all the issues, all the problems that you might run into, that you think you're gonna run into, and just allow the Lord. To do all the work. You just keep your eyes. You surrender and keep your eyes on the Lord. Walk with Him hour by hour basis on a daily basis. Keep your eyes on Him and He will do the rest. He will take care of all those issues and problems that you may think you're going to have because you gave your life to the Lord. Which one are you? I also want to ask an important question. If I go back to the beginning of chapter 22, do you relate to any of these people who found safety and refuge in the cave with David? Are you desperate, in debt, or discontented? Not necessarily in a literal way, but more so in a spiritual way. You find yourself desperate, needing something, someone to come and fill that void that's in your heart that hasn't been able to be filled by anything that you've tried to fill. You're desperate. Are you in need for a saving? Do you recognize your sinner that you need a savior? Are you in debt, in debt, or bankrupt? Are you spiritually bankrupt? Are you empty? Are you done? You just, there's nothing left. Are you discontented? And everything you've tried not been good enough. Failed. Left you angry, disgruntled. Discontented, whether it's the religion of politics or whether it's the religion of another religion, whether it's sports or whether it's fame, whether it's money, it's just left to discontented. Maybe it's over and over and over again, thinking, telling you that this or that will make you happy when. In the end, it, it hasn't. It's only brought heartache, destruction, pain, suffering. Not just for yourself, but for others. Well, come to Jesus and believe me. You will find contentment. You will find, finally have that peace and joy you've been searching for for your entire life. You just turn yourself over and surrender your life to Him. So if that's you, any of that uh, that I've just described, and and you now see your need for Jesus, you now see your need for a Savior. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and 
you want to be born again, you want to be saved, then I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. Wherever you're at, you close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart, you pray this. Lord Jesus, I accept that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner and that I've sinned against you. I admit my sins. Now, I ask you to forgive me. I believe with all my heart that you died for my sins and that you rose from the grave three days later. And I'll turn from my sins and repent from them and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me. Oh, I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit. I may see the world through your eyes, so that I may see the world not through mine, but through yours. So I may see passion and love. Also, guide me in my new blind And you know, you pray. You pray that, welcome to the kingdom of God, and now a child of God, and you've chosen the right path. You chosen the way of Saul. Um, if you did let us know, I'm not the way of Saul, I'm sorry, the way of David. <laughs> um, that's kind of embarrassing. Um, but uh, yeah, you know what I mean. But uh, let us know. Let us know that you prayed that. Um, we want to hear from you. want to hear your story. We want to help you if you miss it in your walk. So, um, again, as always, if you chat to us, leave us a comment on Facebook or on YouTube, and we will uh, get back to you as soon as we can. I hope that you enjoyed this message. Please, again, as I mentioned, again, feel free to share it with those who need to hear it. And um, I pray that you have a blessed week and that you will join us again next week as we continue on here with uh, the story of, of going on with David and, and, and Saul. Um, so, be blessed. And have a great week. Bye, Jeff.